millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hi everyone and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Lucy Barker about her historical novel, The Other Side of Mrs Wood. Lucy was the runner-up for the Curtis Brown First Novel Prize with an early partial draft of her novel. She holds an MA in Victorian Studies from Burbeck University of London and she lives in Bath with her husband and two small children. In this episode, we discuss her interest in Victorian seances and the true story that inspired her novel, how she created a warm and witty voice and how Lucy's lack of faith in herself meant things didn't work out with an agent in her 20s but becoming a runner-up in the competition gave her a confidence in later life. But before we hear that, here's Lucy with an excerpt from The Other Side of Mrs Wood. February 1873, 27 Chepstow Villas, Notting Hill. Mrs Wood's seances took place in the dark, just as all interesting things should. That evening, as the last candle wavered on the sideboard in the smart Notting Hill Villa, London's most influential and affluent believers held their breath. In a few moments, the corridor to the other side would open and any one of their desperately missed beloveds might make their way through. Taffeta shifted and bracelets shivered amidst a flurry of cleared throats, but the great medium, Mrs Wood, was in no hurry. She sat calmly in her ornate chair before them all, her flickering shadow cast long against the closed shutters of the bay window behind. She drew in a long, slow breath her eyes moving easily over the faces turned expectantly back. She was their son, and they were her blooms. There were, as usual, 24 guests, poised for an evening of spirit and spectacle. Most were patrons, their gems signalling to her in the gloom. But here and there were the unfamiliar faces of those grieving souls who had applied to enter the monthly ballot for one of only eight seats available to the masses at each of her monthly grand seances. Tonight, Mrs Wood looked for those carefully selected eight for whom she had tailored the evening. In the front row she noted a pocket-eyed woman clutching a cart to visit. Beside her sat a man of clearly moderate means, a careless nature betrayed by his unappealingly splayed knees. Behind them she took in the mother and daughter in twee matching dresses and another man a little further along whose jacket was coming unstitched along the left lapel. A well-padded woman sat in the back row, fanning herself with a ringless left hand, and there, in the far corner, a young couple. Ah, there they were. So easy to spot in the end. 
the only two people in the entire room not staring back at her. Instead, they sat pressed together, staring silently into their laps, their sadness so captivating that for a moment she was snared, unable to look away. But then the faintest of coughs by her ear returned her to the room and drawing in a long breath, she released one last enigmatic smile. The candle, Mr. Larson, she said, and her candle snuffer extraordinaire leapt from his seat at the end of the row, docking the final flame and plunging the room into a darkness as absolute as death. Mrs. Wood inhaled the collective frisson before exhaling loudly and pronouncing, we begin, as always, with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father. Hi, Lucy. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, The Other Side of Mrs. Wood. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Chloe. I'm really excited. I've been looking forward to this. <laughs> so can you start, Lucy, by giving us an introduction to The Other Side of Mrs. Wood and tell us what it's all about? So The Other Side of Mrs. Wood is um, the story of two warring mediums. It's set in um, 1873 London, and it's uh, the Mrs. Wood of the title is a very established, very successful older medium who has been ruling the spiritualist scene in London for the past 15 years. And whilst her, her, uh, her flag, her flag is flying very high. Um, she's also aware that these young things are starting to come up with different stories and different talents. And she's beginning to notice that interest is starting to wane, not massively, but she can see it coming. And also her patrons who she relies on for her income are um, getting older. And again, she can see what's gonna happen there. So when a young girl, Miss Finch, approaches her and asks her if she will take her on as an apprentice she leaps at the chance because she thinks this is it this is my opportunity to spice up my brand and make me um keep me relevant for for the future years and keep me secure and safe financially so she takes her on miss finch might have other plans however <laughs> yes indeed and uh, we'll we'll avoid spoilers in the chat just to make sure but I'd love if you could <laughs> give us a little bit of the background to the, the development of the idea of this novel because it's sort of loosely inspired by a true story which you do write about in the back of the book but I'd love if you could for the benefit of the podcast listeners kind of explain your your first inspiration for this for this novel. Yes so um, the inspiration comes from two um, mediums who were um, very active on the uh, spiritual scene in 1870s London. And actually um, for um, the younger one, she was actually quite active across the world. Anyway, I'll go into detail now, which is, so Mrs. Wood is based on um, Agnes Guppy, who was, as I say, a very successful medium. She, she started in London in the late 1850s and was going really until her death in the um, early 1900s. Um, she was most well known for this incredible apport, and apport is where you move the sorry the spirits move something um, <laughs> um, within like a, a spiritualist environment. A seance was happening in um, Lamb's Conduit Street in Fitzrovia, and out of the blue, Mrs. Wood, uh, sorry, <laughs> Mrs. Um, Guppy appeared in the middle of the table. Um, 
wearing nothing but her housecoat and her stockinged feet and she had her accounts book and it was as though she had been lifted from her house all the way over in um highfield highbury sorry all the way over to um to lambs conduit street so from this um she was considered she was called the um flying enchantress um so the flying enchantress was she had a huge amount of followers patrons she was incredibly successful they wrote about her all the time miss finch is based on florence cook florence cook some of your listeners will probably have heard of her if they're going to have heard of any medium from london in that period because she was the first um british medium to materialize a full spirit um, and she did this when she was probably 15 or 16 years old in her her parents little front room in hackney um she acquired loads and loads of patrons was very um became very successful and mrs guppy was reportedly very uncomfortable with this and very jealous of this pretty young successful thing coming in and stealing her thunder there are lots of kind of rumors swirling around this there are lots of people writing in the spiritualist newspapers about it there were letters going back and forth that we've seen unsurprisingly these were mostly written by men in fact i'll probably say all of them were written by men and the most cutting rumors were definitely generated by two american mediums who were men because it was an opportunity to cut down the woman who was threatening them. <laughs> um, so I just found that that conflict between old, you know, an older woman with a huge amount of experience being threatened by a younger woman who eventually was so um, bold and brave. She actually um, she was exposed far too many times, mm. and she was um, cast out of the community in the um, by the. I guess by the early 1880s um and I love that kind of like that juxtaposition of um two women of with power and authority within that period and it, of course you know it's a patriarchal society so you know there's still an element of control by men in terms of the finances but they were the names they were the people the women who were who were who were performing these incredibly daring incredibly impressive performances um to, to, to huge acclaim you know and, and no one's really done what well, no one during that period ever did anything like um, mrs guppy did with her huge report and whilst there are lots of materializations you know florence cook is known as the first woman who, who well the first girl who did it yeah and i think like you said the the challenge i suppose for historical fiction writers is to write about women I think particularly because audiences now want to read women who are um you know have agency have power have mm. their own lives and it's very difficult to write that kind of woman in a society where like you say everything finance finances are controlled by men and so it's interesting to read a novel where the women I mean your your the novel is dominated by women and women who have mm. careers and success and that's you know that's a great thing to read I wondered whether you could tell us a little bit more about the eponymous Mrs Wood um she mm -hmm. yeah she's quite a modern a modern character in a way a modern kind of sensibility so can you tell us a little bit about how you created her so um Mrs Wood kind of she was the last kind of character to really fully evolve as I was writing it, which quite often happens with when I write, um, I 
um, my main characters tend to be quite passive, but then on the second go round, I got her. I really got her. Um, once I knew what the story was, I could really dig in deep with her. I think I, one of my passions is um, Victorian history, social history, women's history in the 19th century. I'm really fascinated by the by the ordinary woman doing what we would or what would have been no that's not right at all ordinary women doing slightly extraordinary things because there were lots of women doing this there were lots of women making um having successful lives within those constraints of a patriarchal society um and i wanted to write about a woman who um who who saw financial success as something that she wanted to attain because I, 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 I didn't want it to be a love story. I didn't want it to be a story about a struggling kind of like coming up from the gutters, although there is an element of that. But I, I think those tropes, are, I love them. They're great. Um, and I enjoy reading books about them. But I wanted Mrs. Wood to be something different. I wanted her to, to be confident in her own abilities. I didn't want her to feel as though she was vulnerable in herself. She is vulnerable because of the circumstance that happens to her. So what is it about seances and mediums then that that uh, are such a big interest to you? Um, oh, God, they're magical, aren't they? And, well, in every single way. Um, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with ghosts, poltergeists, seances, speaking to the dead, everything. Uh, you know, I would always getting out really quite inappropriate books from the library, from the adult section. Not, not that kind of inappropriate, but, you know, like... <laughs> properly scary not horror I was just fascinated by like the idea of the other um and that's never really left me um I don't know if I'm a believer um but I do know that I don't know um and I think there's a certain arrogance to say that we there definitely isn't another side and I isn't it lovely to think that there might be um and and then I, as a writer when I was reading about I I I when I, do, I did an MA in Victorian studies at Birkbeck and as part of that I did a, a module on um, religion in the 19th century um, and part of that was talking about was learning about spiritualism or studying spiritualism and how it worked within that society and why it was popular and all that kind of stuff and um, I knew as a writer that there was so much there there's you know those seances I have got I couldn't wait to start writing those seances, you know, getting really stuck in and creating this world of eccentric and interesting characters. Did you go to any when you were writing the novel? Like a modern, obviously a modern day. Uh, mm. No, I didn't, because they're so different to uh, seances today. Are so different to how they would have been then. You know, they were they were much more theatrical in um, the nineteenth century, I'd say. Um, and um but I did go to I did see a medium and I was impressed um and which is again why I'm like I really want to believe <laughs> um but I think uh, but uh, most of the stuff that's in the seances I'd say pretty much 99% of the stuff that's in the seances I actually got from my research um there's a, a there was a spiritualist called Georgiana Horton who was within Mrs Guppy's circle and Georgiana Horton was a spiritualist artist as well as a spiritualist spiritualist and she was incredibly earnest and she kept the most detailed diaries of the seances and they are absolutely delicious and they were perfect for for um 
magpieing from, as I like to call rather than stealing from. Um, but so everything that you read in there, as ridiculous or as, as um, outlandish as it may seem, all of it was true. All of it did happen in seances. Um, whether or not it was true, <laughs> truly from the spirits, who's to say? But um, it definitely happened to Georgiana. Um, and she really believed in it. And she's a, her diaries are so lovely. She's such a wonderful woman. Mm. Tell us a little bit more about your research then, because you mentioned obviously the MA in Victorian studies. And I know just from speaking to you before we recorded that you're not a planner, you write as <laughs> come to you. So how, how does your research then fit in around all this? Do you kind of dip in and out? Do you do all your research first and then write? What's your kind of, how did, what's your kind of, I guess, methodology about how you, how you wrote this book alongside your research? Um, I think because I had all the foundation stuff, so I, although my auntie always reminds me that I don't know who, I don't know my kings and queens, <laughs> but one day I will know that, and prime ministers, one day I will know that, but because I had the foundations of it, so I understood what society was like during that period, um, I was okay to kind of get started, but then, um, I, I, because I am a bit of a pantser, although this time around I seem to be a bit more of a plotter, which is bizarre, um, but because I'm a pantser, um, I tend to research as I go. I use visual cues to get me going. So I'll have images of a room or, you know, things that, that I know are going to come up in my the first few chapters of writing. I use those to get me going. And then I tend to, I'll, if something comes up, I'll go and research that like a specific thing. But um, no, I tend to just, I, I fit it in around it. I think if I was to research it before I wrote it, I'd never start writing. There would always be something that I think I didn't know. Mm. You don't know what you don't know until you don't know it. <laughs> that is very true. <laughs> I like the idea of having kind of a photo, I don't know, on your computer or by your side while you're trying to figure out mm. a scene. Does that mean I'm 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 trying to get a sense of kind of like how you write? So does that mean you kind of write scenes out of order? you kind of write them when you you think of them or do you write them in kind of chronological order as the story goes it's I write I write in a linear way mm. um book two's been slightly different but book one definitely completely linear from beginning to end um I've never known I've never really understood how anyone cannot do it like that but as I say I'm experiencing a, I'm having a slightly different experience this time um so um because Mrs. Wood is quite a domestic novel, it's set within these darkened rooms. Um, having those images, uh, they they kind of they they immediately convey the sense of tone and the sense of feel. So it's more that than or I don't tend to have images of people. I can't do that because my I I don't even know what my characters necessarily look like they they are just like they they have eyes and a nose and a mouth maybe um and a, and hair but I wouldn't be able to pick them out of a crowd I just have a sense of them mm. so I might have a dress or you know whatever but I think it's more um it's more to create that sense and the tone and that kind of thing so yeah so no I write in a very linear way mm. I'm very boring <laughs> one thing I have to ask you about because it's such a a touch a draw of your novel because it makes it so much fun to read is the the narrative voice and the tone of the novel because it's got such a sort of wit and humor about it and I saw a quote from you where you said your editor described your writing as similar to um, Austin and how 
Um, <laughs> what, a, what a pressure to live up to. Um, so how, how did you manage to reach that kind of tone of voice? Or was that something that as soon as you started writing, that kind of that voice was the thing that propelled you through the novel? It's the voice that propelled me through. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my natural I, my natural writing style is like that. It is kind of, I find it really difficult to be serious. I don't like really to be serious. I like to read books that have a warmth and, a, and an identity in their tone. Um, so I think it, it certainly was, a, I didn't try to do any of that. I was just having fun. <laughs> then as you go into book two you're like have fun have fun go on have fun it's the only way you can write um but you know I think you know the set pieces of what my editor was referring to um where there's lots of people and you know at parties and, and things like that and those are an absolute joy to write because it's you're just skewering all of these different types of personalities and that is just totally my bag I love that if I yeah. could just write massive party scenes all the time, <laughs> I would have a book. Yeah, just set all your books during, yeah, I don't know, special occasions or something, and then you can write. Yeah. The yeah. And I, and I, oh my I, god, I'm going to write the next one about coronation. Yeah, <laughs> I think I heard an interview with you where you said um, you were sort of being asked about women in the Victorian era compared to women now, and you were saying, well, of course, mm. women in the Victorian era would go and bitch about people and you know have that kind of gossip yeah it's not like the the part people in the past we tend to think of as like a whole different species but actually they're like exactly the same as us just having different experiences yes and that's something which I definitely wanted to convey in the book as well and it's you know and it's how Mrs Wood was formed as well you know but those so yeah that's exactly what I wanted to convey in those social scenes and you know and when they're in the circle like you know you're right we sanitize the past we want that to you know we want to see them as you know a merchant ivory kind of production we we want them to be like that but they were they're human beings you know they're so very close in terms of history to us also you know that the issues that bothered them socially pretty much the same as the ones that still bother us now um so if they have you know those women were just like us mm-hmm. they were you know they had the same needs the same wants um some of them were frustrated some of them were successful you know they're just humans and I love that about them and I really want to color them up like that yeah absolutely yeah. I think you've done a, a great job of doing that I wondered oh, thank you what the kind of I guess the biggest challenge was for you writing this book kind of did you was there a hurdle that you can remember thinking I'm just never gonna get over this never gonna get this book done or I'm never gonna achieve what I want to achieve can you remember kind of any moment like that yeah well I think as a writer you feel that pretty much every time you look at your manuscript (laughs) (laughs) Um, but um yeah I definitely I think because I was hanging it around this true story it was figuring out how to bring that true story in um and the true story as I say is that rivalry between Agnes Guppy and Florence Cook but it is based on this one piece where um this one piece of gossip where Mrs Guppy this older woman is saying that she would like to throw vitriol in 
Mrs. Influence Cook's face, which is a horrendous thing to say. I doubt that she said it. It was totally sold on by these jealous men. Um, but it was that it was that moment that I really wanted to kind of that really that that brutality out of nowhere. Um, that, but I couldn't figure out a way. I didn't want to have a story that was necessarily about that kind of violence but I wanted to have something which reflected that kind of rivalry. But I only had one moment. I didn't have a beginning, a middle or an end. I didn't have a, a like a, a, like a traditional, there was no arc there. It was literally just a moment. So building that story around it and also building a rivalry that you believed, which between a woman who's just about to turn 40 and a 16 year old girl, you know, like how does morally, how does that sit? Um, so that was something which I really struggled with. Um, mm just making the story work and be believable and also finishing it I'd never really I'd always just done one draft and gone ta-da and thought that was it that's me done why isn't anyone buying it and then suddenly <laughs> I realized like oh no 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 there's more okay oh there's another draft oh there's a, oh there's another draft um yeah that was mm. that was intense <laughs> there is actually that was definitely a learning curve in your um acknowledgements where you thank one friend for helping you write the beginning of your book and another friend mm. write, help you write the end of the book. Can you remember, was there kind of a, a nugget of advice or were they just kind of cheering you on? What was the thing, what what were the key things that they kind of gave you to finish and to start this book? It literally gave me the idea. So um, <laughs> it's very literal. <laughs> so, so Fran Quinn, who is author of The Smallest Man, and that bone setter woman who I did the Curtis Brown writing course with in 2014 is a really good friend of mine. And we go away writing or we have done in the past quite a lot. And um, she saw the Curtis Brown creative, sorry, Curtis Brown book, first book novel award, first novel award. As you can see, I've got that off Pat. <laughs> and um, anyway, so she saw the award and she said, you're going to write, you need to enter this. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm not really writing anything at the moment. And so she was like, well, go and find, right. Tell me what you're interested in and tell, and then we'll work out something from there. So she, I told her what I was interested in. And she said, okay, fine, go write that. And so I did. So she whipped me into getting it started. And then I was away with our other friend, Kate, and who also writes, who's also a beautiful writer. Um, and I was stuck with the ending. I couldn't make it work. And she said, why don't you just do this? And so I did, and it worked. <laughs> Not the very, very ending, but like the kind of climax of it. And I was like, oh yeah, no, I do that. And that was it. So literally they gave me the beginning and the end. Thank God for friends who are oh kind of ideas. And sometimes you just need that outside of perspective, don't you? It's someone to go, yeah. what about this? And you go, oh, yes. Oh yeah, good idea. My agent's quite like that. So there was, so one of the other climaxes where it's really addressing that true story. Um, we just spent ages kind of like, how do we do this without, without kind of ruining everyone? And how do we do this without the story taking a really awful turn? Um, so she was, she would, she would just kind of like call me up and make suggestions. And she's really like that. You know, she really puts her, she puts her thought into, into the, like she really invests in the book basically and becomes part of the journey, which is great. I'm really lucky. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I wondered whether you can remember, obviously, right um, entering the Curtis Brown first novel award, which we'll talk about in a bit, but... I wonder whether you could remember a moment where you thought, okay, I'm going to take my writing seriously. I'm going to invest in it. I'm going to really try to become an, an a published author. Can you remember that moment, that kind of change? Because I know you've been writing for years kind of for fun and mm. just for yourself. Was there a moment where you thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to start writing with the aim of being published? Well, I, th- I I know when we were talking earlier, I was saying that I was writing for fun, but I also was writing. I did want to get published. And that's that's been the aim since I was six. <laughs> but I, goals. I wanted to be the youngest person ever published. You know, <laughs> I wasn't by any means. <laughs> and um, so there wasn't a time where I didn't want to get published, I think, even when I was like writing the worst stories about death and horrendous things happening to women when I was like 14 15 16 um even then I wanted to get published so um but I didn't take it seriously as in I didn't believe that I had it in me until um I think well until I till I saw finally said right I'm just going to apply to do the Curtis Brown course if I want to do this I need to know how to do it because you know it's a big financial investment so it's a time investment but I didn't mind the time investment but you know it was it was a big deal to do it it wasn't it wasn't just a a, a, you know it impacted on our finances obviously because I say you know it's expensive but I had to do it Mm. um and then that changed everything because then I was a writer yeah and that's what I thought (laughs) (laughs) obviously you met friends on the course and you, you you kind of as I said kind of took your writing more seriously as such did you approach, because I know, oh, again, we'll talk about the award in a minute, but did you query agents at that point or were you were you kind of submitting other things, writing other novels? What was your kind of, um, I guess, early attempts at getting into publishing? Um, well, I did have an agent when I was in my 20s. She was 
uh, really such a, a, she's still an agent now. I won't say who she is because I'm sure she wouldn't want me to. But she um, she took me on when she was just starting, um, when she was building her list um, based on a partial. And I just then did nothing because I didn't realize how hard it was to get an agent because I'd literally just sent it out and got offered. So that's been my only experience of querying, really. I wasn't sending, did I? I sent out, oh, I don't know, I was terrible. I just used to send out like a couple of chapters to someone going, here it is, the masterpiece you've been searching for. <laughs> then, then just give me a surprise. But no, I didn't really do anything. Like, I didn't have enough faith in myself, I don't think, to really go for it, to really take it seriously, to really follow those rules until I was uh, on the Curtis Brown course. Mm. and I think the timing was right then I mean it still took me a good couple of years well it took me when did I finish that 2014 20 and the competition was 2019 but you know I I had that's I had my children in that time and I didn't have the right idea Mm. I think it takes time doesn't it I mean I think obviously Mm. if you if you're lucky enough to have an idea when you're really young and and have done a course or maybe you haven't done a course and then you just go for it and really learn how the industry works and I'm sure there are people that can do it instantly but um I think sometimes it is a gradual a gradual kind of climb and also um learning to believe in yourself and to think it's actually possible I mean until I did the Faber course I didn't even think it was that really possible to be published I just thought it was just mm. a thing that happened to people that were lucky I didn't really think it was something yes um yeah, I completely agree. I think knowing, understanding the industry is really important mm. um, because it's really tough and it's built on other people's dreams. You know, the product that they sell is other people's. I don't think there's any other industry really like it. Well, maybe music. No, there's probably loads. But <laughs> I think publishing is essentially, you know, you have all of these people desperate to give you stuff thousands and millions of thousands like people who just will continue to churn stuff out until and, and you know you you could you have a captive market in a way or a captive area of resources you, you, the publishing industry is built on people who are, have dreamed of this all mm. of their lives and when they go into it and it's just a business that's hard that's really hard you're no longer you know you've gone from selling your book and everyone telling you that it's great to suddenly be thrown into the like this ocean where everyone else has had that experience too you're you're through the gate and you now you're in that that's massive ocean full of other people who've said it to you you're not special you didn't realize you know you don't realize <laughs> that on the other side of the gate it's just more of the same you know, and I don't mean that in a kind of derogatory way. I mean that in a way that you're not prepared for that. You're not prepared for the fact that you just become someone who's written a book who I'm just trying to phrase this properly. You just you've you've just moved through that gate into into this world where as long as you keep writing your and your publisher likes it, you will continue to be have your book published. But if your book doesn't perform, your publisher has got no qualms in going, 
see you later. Do you know what I mean? There's a real kind of, you don't understand until you're through that gate, just how cutthroat it is yeah. and how it's not about dreams and cups of tea and working on your manuscript. It's about graft and, and it's about your product and what you, what you turn out. That's all you are. Sorry, I'm so I'm completely cynical. You can cut all that if you want. But I think <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm I've had about it all the time. Uh, in that, there's such a difference between the creative side of it, where it's you alone with your ideas and your characters, and that kind of. I mean, it's not it's not as flowery as I made it just sound. Then, um, like you say, it's not <laughs> in nice uh, laptops and you know looking out the window and thinking of your ideas. It's it is the graft of it, but when your book becomes a book it's not a book anymore it's a product and it suddenly becomes yes. about numbers and marketing and actually mm. authors are not involved in that part like you've done the work but you you don't get you don't have so much say in terms of what the book becomes or how it's going to be yeah. sold or and that is so difficult to deal with because you almost feel like yes. but it's mine and why where's the control and then you will learn that there is no control that's not you're not part of that anymore the gate has been shut as no. yeah and I think that when you kind of I I think there's real pros and then there's real cons to joining your, the debut a group of debuts from your year so 20 obviously I'm in the 2023 one simply because there are some people we all come through that gate really excited and like yay here we go and then some people start to pull away because or they start to take the leap because they're talking about the marketing plans they're talking about these amazing things that are happening then you've got other people who are saying who who are realizing that actually they're not getting the same kind of spend and then you get people that are realizing i'm getting no spend and no support and then you, you know and all of a sudden there's this huge disparity and not only are you facing that insecurity every day when you stare at your manuscript you're suddenly facing that insecurity every day when you see the other people who are in the same race as you mm. running away and i think i think you know twitter i mean i love twitter um as in i love book twitter i i love um i hate the rest of it um and i like the you know the group is amazing but i think you know it's it, it it just kind of intensifies and amplifies the whole um, business side of it. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, we, um, we are just, we, it is just a product. Yeah. Do you listen to the publishing radio podcast? Sometimes, sometimes I just can't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, the thing is I'm, I'm, I, I am one of those, um, people though that I've had a really good experience mm -hmm. if I you know I think uh, there is nothing I could say about my publishers in the UK and my whole experience of being published in the UK that is bad at all they have been absolutely brilliant and I have loved every minute of working with them and none of it has been a disappointment well, no yeah. <laughs> well obviously you know the fact it's not a bestseller like <laughs> but um but you know but they are it's been an absolute joy so I am really lucky and I, I sound really churlish when I'm talking about you know that, that it's tough but I, it's because I've seen it you know I've yeah. seen it now I'm on the other side of the the curtain I've seen really? I think it, I think we all become cynical to an extent because like you say we've seen 
all sides of it it's upsetting when you see people who've worked really hard on their book and then the book doesn't do very well or the book doesn't have the support that it deserves and then um you know you see other books that are just flying off the shelves and you think well there are books that I've read that are not getting that support that deserve to be flying off the shelves and it's really Mm. odd as an experience I mean I I wonder how obviously both of us have become cynical um twisted (laughs) people (laughs) you've kind of coped through this weirdness and have you just kind of tried Mm. to stay focused on the writing and the the kind of the good aspects like what what have you done to kind of strengthen yourself I think I have this really good ability to completely disassociate with what's going on and I think this I've always used my writing for that I think I always um I didn't have a difficult childhood, but it was quite chaotic. And I think that's why I used to write all the time, just to escape into another world. And so I'm just really good at it. Um, So I don't, (laughs) it just, I think I was saying to you earlier on, it's um, not by saying I'm not really good at the writing. I mean, I'm really good at escaping. Um, But it's like I was saying to you earlier on, like it just feels very surreal, like it's happening to somebody else. Um, So I'm completely capable of disengaging quite quickly and, and I think because I've seen some friends go through it themselves, had success, um, but also heard through them, you know, some difficulties that other people have faced and all that kind of stuff. And one of my friends definitely doesn't sugarcoat things. Um, I'm really aware of all the stuff that could happen. And I think, I think, I don't know, I'm just, I'm along for the ride. Mm-hmm. You know, I, this has been the thing that I've always wanted. Um, so I'll just stay on its back just to use the Bronco thing. I'll just kind of ride it. I'll ride it until it kicks me off, I suppose. I don't know. I don't know. It's really difficult. I I guess I still haven't come to terms with the fact that it's even happened. Mm. It's probably better just to be separate from it and and kind of not think about it. Um... Yeah. It does take the joy out of it a little bit, but you know. (laughs) keeps me safe <laughs> though, it's it's quite useful to have or to know people and and I know obviously you know Fran um who've already been through it and have done it and have yeah decided and written another book or have 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 not or whatever the case may be it's I, I I always think it's useful to have a friend that's like a year ahead of you or two years ahead of you so you can yeah. say, you get you get to know all the ups and downs before they happen to you it's kind of quite <laughs> Handy. I, think, I think maybe that's really helped as well the fact that um yeah I'm like ready for it because you no know, Fran has this incredibly bleak sense of humor she probably doesn't even realize she has it but she does um and she's always waiting for the other shoe to drop and I love it when she talks because she always talks about oh it's just a bit of flannel and I love that and um in fact I use it in my books um, because it's such a great saying and I think um yeah her ability to see through things has been really you know she's she's had a great experience she really has but and um that's been really positive for me but because she's so direct it's been very helpful there's no flannel with Fran <laughs> should be a slogan on her t-shirt isn't it <laughs> <laughs> should be yeah <laughs> But also the thing is that it means that when things are going right and I ask her and I tell her 
for me, I mean, is this okay? What do you think of this? She's she's just like, that's brilliant. And I know that she's right mm -hmm. because it's flannel-less flan. Flan. <laughs> so I have to touch on the uh, Curtis Brown first novel prize because you were the runner-up and that also led to you signing with your agent. So I was wondering... Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, obviously, Fran encouraged you to apply and you did. Um, and then, so you got, so you became runner up and then you got a phone call saying, I'd like to represent you. How did it all happen? Oh, that was amazing. Um, that whole experience was just bonkers. So I say, Fran saw the, well, we both saw it, the competition, and Fran said, You're doing this. And so I did it. And I submitted, I think you could just submit up to 10,000 words or the first three chapters. So I submitted the first three chapters um, and submitted it, obviously, at the very last minute on the very last day that you possibly could. Um, and then it was like, it's supposed to be a month before they released the shortlist. And then that went on and I was getting sweatier and sweatier and sweatier. And then I got an email saying, we're announcing the long list tomorrow. And then I was wanted to vomit because I didn't think they were going to do a long list and then the following week they did the shortlist and then I was I knew the shortlist was coming and there was no email there was no email and then I got it quarter past five saying you're shortlisted and then the following week I got a phone call when I was I used to work at Stonehenge and I was had I was in a meeting about the redesign for the Stonehenge website and I had a London call on my mobile so I was like on oh, my mobile oh my God, I'm so old on my phone so I just grabbed it I went outside and it was Lucy and she said the first thing she said was you haven't won but you've come second and I want to represent you and then it was just like okay can we speak in a bit because I'm in a meeting and then I went back in and just couldn't concentrate on anything it was amazing <laughs> oh that's brilliant and a nice way for you to to hear the news I mean you haven't won but Consolation is represented. I know. I mean, and I think over 3,000 people entered. And it, it, yeah, I, I still, and I think, again, like, I still can't quite believe that that happened. I'd never entered a competition before, you know? It was, and it literally was just, I wrote it for, anyway, blah, blah, blah. I'm very lucky, very, very lucky. And Lucy's amazing. She's just, she yeah she's great okay so finally lucy can you tease us with what you're working on next well it is historical still it is about strong women in unusual circumstances it takes place slightly later in 1908 and it is based on a true story but not really it's kind of based on a true thing it has truth to it oh, there we go that's yeah but it's um but it is it's about ordinary women doing ordinary things but potentially in an extraordinary way brilliant that sounds fantastic and um as your natural wit comes through i'm sure it will have the uh brilliant yeah. tone of your first book <laughs> Well, I hope, yeah, I hope so. As I say, like, if I don't, if I'm not having fun when I'm writing, I just don't want to write. So, definitely. Well, Lucy, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, thank you so much. That was Lucy Barker talking about her historical novel, 
The Other Side of Mrs Wood, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop, hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.